Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. Welcome to another episode of the Build with Clay podcast. Today, we're going to build with Mike Conlon. Mike is originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. He received his law degree from the University of Minnesota in 1990. He was active in the financial planning business from 1990 to 2002, where he owned a financial planning broker-dealer that he grew from $1.6 million in revenue to over $40 million in just five years. Then Mike stepped out of the financial world and into the real estate world, which is where he and I met. Mike is now the president and CEO of Affordable Communities Group, which owns thousands of affordable living units across the country, and he's widely known as one of the most successful real estate investors in the country. Mike is a philanthropist, giving back to many organizations, including most recently a $1 million grant to Wake Technical Community College. The Conlon Venture Fund will support entrepreneurship and small business programs at Wake Tech, Shaw University, and St. Augustine's University. Mike wrote Unconventional Wealth, A Guide to Becoming a Millionaire by Helping Others Get What They Need. Mike has been a mentor to me, and I'm thrilled to have him here to share his journey and his insights. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Clay. Appreciate it. We're going to get to know you a little bit, and I'm very curious on a couple of these answers. So I'm going <laughs> to give you some like very quick get to know you, would you rathers. Sure. So first, you're about to go on a road trip. You're going to be the passenger on a road trip. You're going to walk into a convenience store, and you're going to get one drink and one snack. What are you grabbing? I'm grabbing a bottle of water and a protein bar. This one's interesting. I don't know my answer. Would you rather be a teen forever or would you rather be elderly forever? Ooh, that's tough. Well, if elderly, you're talking like 75 plus, definitely not. You know, if you're talking, you know, 45, 50 plus, for sure. I yeah, mean, I think we're talking like 75 plus. Uh, no, because, you know, I know so many people now who've got health issues and whatever. It just, you know, it's a rarity to be a Warren Buffett and be 91 and still working. Whereas, um, you know, the teen years were, for me, were amazing. It was carefree, did whatever. There are obviously social pressures. Now being a teen with all the social media would be a whole nother story. I didn't no. have it when I was a kid. And I'm really glad I didn't have it because now the bullies are just ridiculous. So Oh, it's, it's bad. Yeah. And yeah. you can keep accessing it. We actually yeah. talked about that with David Knockle, who's a teacher in, in Denver. Uh, he was on the podcast and he was talking about how they just have constant access. Like someone bullies you. It's not yeah. just one time they said it in gym class. It's yeah. online that you can just keep looking at it and looking at it and looking Can't at it. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. good. You mentioned Warren Buffett. I heard a very interesting stat about Warren Buffett recently. So his net worth is something like $100 billion, yeah. something like that. He's 91, like you said. After his 65th birthday, something like 95 of his 100, mil, 100 billion was yeah. accumulated yeah. after 65. Isn't that amazing? Power right. of compounding, man. Yeah. Over a period of time, you get that extra 25 years of your life where, you know, obviously he had a nice stash going into age 65, but, you know, it really came through. And 
obviously the stock markets, you know, from really 1983 on all the way up till, you know, really recently have been just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Big runs. All right. This is the one I'm most excited to ask you. I know you're a big basketball fan. You're a big NBA fan. Yeah. If you owned an NBA team, would you rather have prime Giannis or prime Steph on your team? Wow. That's a tough question. I would say, I'll give you two answers to that. If I want to have a team that's super exciting to watch, I go with Steph. If I'm building a championship team, I go with Giannis. I just think Giannis is the most dominating player, and he's only, what, 25? Is going to win more titles. They probably could have won again this year if uh, Middleton was healthy. I love Steph as a player, but from a dominant you know, power championship team and the fact that he loves small markets, he's willing to stay in Milwaukee, that's where I'd go with Giannis. Yeah. Well, I was very curious if you'd go like the Homer route, because I know you love Giannis and I know yeah. that you, you know, you're from Wisconsin Yeah. or if you would go with Steph, cause I knew you love Steph. And he's <sighs> incredible. Oh, oh. Can I have both of them on the same team? And <laughs> then you'd win every championship. Exactly. Yeah. That would be fun. Earlier I asked if you would rather be a teen forever or elderly forever. And you said teen, which I think that's what I would go with too. I know you've got an interesting story from when you were a teenager. So I'd love for you to share that one. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I always grew up, um, as you know, we talked about a little bit in a corporate world where, you know, my dad pushed hard, you get good grades, you get, you know, go to a good college and you get a good corporate job. And <laughs> unfortunately, it didn't work out for me. I mean, I was able to get good grades because school was fairly easy for me. But when I, this story is sort of funny and it shows, you know, how I had that entrepreneurial bent. And I'll tell you where it came from in a second after I tell you the story. But so when I was 15, a buddy of mine who were, you know, we were fairly reckless a little bit, again, carefree. A couple guys bet us a hundred bucks that we wouldn't jump off this, the main bridge in town, which was, you know, somewhere around 35, 40 feet high. Now it was in the area where a lot of boats went through. So we figured it had to be 10, 12 feet deep. Um, so about a hundred people gathered around on like a Sunday afternoon. Um, it looked a lot higher when we got up there. It was like, oh, I don't know about this, but we both did it. We both hit the bottom, um, but, you know, with enough, you know, space in between, it's probably 12, 13 feet deep and bounced back up. No big deal. hundred bucks, you know, as a 15 year old back then was like, Hey, you know, got money for the week or a couple weeks, whatever it may be. So it was great. Thought everything was fine. Everyone thought everything was funny and great. Well, the next day somebody tells my dad and my dad was irate. I've never seen him that mad at me in my life. And I didn't understand. I'm like, dad, it was no big deal. It wasn't that high. You know, the whole explain thing. And he went into how I ruined the family name and all this other stuff. And I was like, really? I just, I didn't, you know, that's where the first time I, where I really didn't see eye to eye with him. He was a, he was in banking, which means you have to be more corporate than corporate, you know, and reputation was everything for him. And I was, you know, I had this entrepreneurial, like not afraid streak and I didn't know where it came from or how it all happened. And, but I just did what I did and I didn't really think about the consequence. It was no big deal, but man, I was grounded for weeks after that from my dad. And what I realized later on as I was talking to one of my cousins who had done a family tree is my grandfather was quite the entrepreneur. He never made it really successful. Um, his parents came over from Ireland. So, he, you know, when he was young, he came to the Midwest and he started a bread company and he ran that bread company for 40 years. 
And it enabled my dad, his brother, and his sister all to go to good colleges because that was the whole intent. But he was an entrepreneur. He ran the business. Again, it never made a huge amount of money, but it enabled his kids to go to college. And so that's where that streak of entrepreneurism, my dad didn't get it at all. Um, he was definitely more corporate, afraid to take a risk, did not like me taking risks. But when you don't realize where things happen, you just sort of go with the flow. And it's not until I was older that I was more comfortable with that. Because when you're sort of pounded in the fact of the three, you know, geez, good grades, you know, good school, good job, you're sort of afraid to take a chance because what if I fail? What, you know, people laugh at me, whatever. But that was just, I had it in me and I just really didn't know it at the time. But it all, in the end, it all worked out good. We laugh about it. My dad passed away a couple years ago, but we all, the whole family would laugh about it. Like, you know, Mike was a wild kid back in the day, so. Well, and it was foreshadowing for, you know, you starting to take some risks at some point, like you said, when you were comfortable with it. I know we're going to get into a little bit of your journey about, you know, when you probably got a little bit annoyed with the corporate good job thing and, uh, you know, started moving on. I know you, yeah. And I know you highlight a lot of that in your book, which is awesome, by the way, of unconventional wealth. So, well, cool story. I, I don't think I would have done that at 15. I think because my dad imprinted in me for so long about like not diving into a pool unless you know for sure that it's like, you know, seven feet deep or eight feet deep or whatever. So I think I would have just had the fear of God in me. Well, we definitely didn't dive from that level. Let me get that. True. I jumped, but yes. Uh, But still hitting bottom was sort of a surprise because it, you know, it happens quickly when you're doing it, but it was, you know, we just bounced right back out. Yeah, it was buffered. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying though, too. It's that would make me nervous for sure. I just, yeah. Seen too many. Just on a side story note, too, one of my really good friends when he was 14 uh, became paralyzed. Another one of his friends was with playing with a gun went off accidentally and went through his spinal cord. So, you know, and he was, you know, one of my best friends up until he died. And what's crazy about that whole story is not only is one of my best friends in my first wedding with my first wife, he actually so called quote unquote stood up in the wedding even though he was in a wheelchair and a quadriplegic. And I'll never forget that, you know, that night when he was doing everything, he was leading the conga line around the thing, you know, it was a big, you know, wedding or whatever. But what's really bizarre about that is that night he passed away. He died. Wow. Yeah. So it was a, it was a crazy type of thing because him and I were like super tight. And then for him to pass away and I didn't know about it for a week because I went on my honeymoon the next morning and my parents said, well, you know, we went down to the Cayman Islands or something. And they said, well, you know, we don't want to bring him back and whatever. And I was like shocked when I got back. So, yeah, it was so, you know, going with the uh, situation that there's you learn, you know, to appreciate. I, I think the one thing uh, that Mark taught me more than anything was gratitude. Kid always had a smile on his face. His life was hell. I mean, just always searching for that last possible cure whatever it may be but then to sort of go out on top you know he was the highlight of the party and whatever his life expectancy wasn't probably more than you know 2025 just because his lungs couldn't handle the capacity and everything so you know sort of a side story on what you're talking about yeah it was a crazy situation so we that's one reason why i definitely wouldn't have dove into anything because i was pretty familiar with that whole scenario at that time oh gosh yeah and and of course, that's a terrible thing that happened, but how cool is it that, that the last day you got to see him when yeah. he was just living his best life? Yes. 
Yeah. That's Great really job. neat. Yeah. Really neat. Well, I asked my guests uh, two questions every time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to switch it up a little bit for you because okay. of where your expertise is. So I usually ask people to define a growth mindset, which I know you have as an entrepreneur. Yeah. But because you concentrate, you've concentrated so much on wealth and really everything you've done, I'd be curious how you would define wealth. Yeah, you know, I think wealth is accumulating enough financial assets so you have time freedom. For me, it, it doesn't matter if you, whatever you make in a salary and whatever, if you're working 50, 60 hours a week, it just doesn't make any sense. For me, it was always about time. When can I do what I want to do? And I've been fortunate enough, at least over the last 20 years, to be able to do that. Now, it's not to say I don't work hard because when their deals are happening or stuff's going on, you know, we do work hard, but, you know, there's weeks where, you know, I maybe work 10 hours a week too and, you know, go to all the kids events and do all that type of stuff. So for me, it's all about time freedom. I never had a scorecard said I need a million dollars. I need $3 million. Everybody's situation is different. But if that money doesn't give you the time freedom, you're not truly wealthy in my opinion. Yeah. I love that definition. I think that uh, you know, that's certainly what I'm seeking. You know, I got three little kids at home, so I want to yep. spend as much time with them and my friends and be able to do this podcast and, and other things that I care about, beat Ryan Armstrong in basketball, you know, all that. <laughs> well, type that's of stuff. A good thing. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. yeah. Um, and yeah, having that time freedom is huge. Uh, yeah. and so I love the definition of wealth because especially in America, like what do they call it? The hedonic treadmill where it's just, yep. you just keep going and going and going and going and you always want more and more and more and more. And what people don't realize is like their most valuable asset, in my opinion, is time. Yeah. And just giving it away. And I think what you realize as you get older is that things don't really matter that much. I mean, it's nice to have a nice car, or a nice house or whatever, but there's a limit to that. And, you know, to have three or four houses or whatever, to me, it's like ridiculous because it's a, you can rent whatever you want to rent whenever you want. You don't have the obligations. Um, but really, again, it goes back to that time to be able to enjoy your life and, spend time with the people you want to spend time with and not have to be on a corporate treadmill where you're working, working, working. And what you find, as you well know, in corporate America is people live up to their paycheck. They spend what their paycheck is. They keep ratcheting up the lifestyle and join the country club and get the bigger house and do whatever. You know, it's all great, but to some extent, it doesn't really matter in the end. Nobody cares about that. Right. When my dad was on his deathbed at the age of 60, no one was saying anything about the cars he had or the boat he had or anything like that. It was just, they just talked about the person he was. Yeah. And correct. it's all that matters. Yeah. But I think we don't really one thing. And it's really, you know, going back to one of the other questions you were asking me two prior is, you know, really, what is it all about? And it's really, it's how, how big an impact you can have on other people. And can you make a positive impact where you help them one way or another, even if just having a positive attitude and have a smile on your face every day and, you know, leading by example where you're, you're grateful. I mean, for me, gratitude is everything. It's if you can lead with say, Hey, I really, I really appreciate every day. I appreciate, I wake up every day. I appreciate it. I'm healthy. I got a great family. You know, everything's good. That, you know, goes a long way. And, Every once in a while, we all go through periods where it's a little bit of funk, where it's like, my dude, you know, things are a little down for whatever reason. And then you realize that you have it better than 99% of the people in the world, you know, and it's real quick to change your attitude when you, when you, you really lead with gratitude and the rest sort of takes care of itself. Love that. All right. Well, that gets a little bit into our why or our purpose. So I asked every guest, 
what is your why? What is your purpose in life? And it's a deep question, but curious how you'd answer it, Mike. Yeah, I, I think my why is how much impact I can make on people's lives on a daily or weekly basis. And I, I like to meet new people because I like to experience them. I like to be a positive influence on them. And I like to help people. I mean, as you and I have talked about for a while, you know, I've coached this eighth grade basketball team for a number of years. I don't have a son on the team, but I just, I like the kids. They, you know, they look up to me, they respect me. We've had some, you know, pretty good success with the team. And I've, it's, it's just grown every year, but it's just, when you can teach them and make a positive impact and they have a great experience in their eighth grade season where they're having fun, you know, we work really hard and stuff, but nobody's screaming at them or whatever. I've had coaches through the years that have been just ridiculous, you know I mean? And you have too, I'm sure, where they take it way too seriously. And that's, you know, you got to be firm and obviously you don't want, you know, you want it to be a discipline type situation, but it, it's got to be a fun situation too. And that's really where, I look at it and everybody I could meet, if I could meet a new person once a week and have a positive impact on them, then that's really what you look forward to in life. Again, the money doesn't, if once you get to a certain level and you have the time freedom, the money really doesn't do a lot for you. Yeah. Well, I've seen your giving back firsthand. I mean, we've met, I've, you know, kind of randomly reached out to you seeing the, the area that you were in and you've been a great mentor to me, to Ryan and I know many others. So I've seen it firsthand, you giving your time. And when you're, when you're with people, including us, right, it's like, you're all in, right. You're not distracted by anything else going on and you're all in. And I, I know you're passionate about your eighth grade team too. Um, so, uh, Hey man, if you, and you know, if you need scout players, Ryan and I are happy to be scout players (laughs) at any point. (laughs) Uh, but I know you got some studs on that team. Well, very cool. Awesome. Love the why love the purpose. Let's get into your journey a little bit. I know you kind of started out on the you know personal finance, financial planning area. What was financial planning like in the 90s? Let's take a step back just to show you the corporate thing that led to me to, to how to get there. Went to law school, have no reason. My dad went to law school, went into banking. I did the same thing. I have no idea why. Hated law school. Completely boring. So theoretical. Teaches you nothing about being a lawyer. So I just struggled there because I just like sort of lost my way a little bit. I'm like, why am I here? Um, the reason I went to the University of Minnesota is they supposedly had a, a joint MBA law program and it really wasn't what it was. I really loved the MBA classes, but you know, I was enrolled in law school. So it sort of happened. Got out, went into banking, went into what is now, it was called First Wisconsin at the time. It's now U.S. Bank. Downtown Milwaukee, corporate to no end, wearing a suit every day. And I lasted about 18 months. I did super well in the interviews. And then when I told them, like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't stand the brown nosing. I just, it's way too slow for me. Uh, they were all shocked because, you know, my dad was in banking and they'd known him and, and stuff like that. And they're like, why would you leave? I mean, you got this great career ahead of you. I'm like, dude, I'm going to lose my mind. I, I just, I, whatever it is, I can't do this. Um, and so I left and I joined a financial planning firm. And the greatest thing that probably happened to me in life, I failed miserably at that plan, at that firm. I thought financial planning was going to be more, hey, you're going to help people. Again, going back to that whole thing. But really, was it was all just a sales job. Sell as much garbage as you can to anybody and let them figure it out. And I was very disillusioned. So not only I quit a really good corporate job, but within nine months, I was sort of washed out of the financial planning industry as a salesperson because A, I was not a salesperson. I had no idea how to sell. I'd never sold anything in my life. Um, and I was very disillusioned of 
how sort of dishonest the business was, where it was all about commission-driven products. Uh, people sold products just to win trips, you know, financial planners. It was, it's, it was a crazy time before a lot of the regulations set in, so it was different. And after that uh, nine months of failure, and again, the one thing I would strongly encourage people, and I, I always encourage my kids to do, is do multiple things when you're young, because you got to find out what you don't want to do. And all of a sudden, I was all for two. Didn't <laughs> like banking, washed out in financial planning. And again, you know, when you grow up in that corporate world, people are looking at you like, what is this guy doing? Has he lost his mind or whatever? And so I ended up going with a broker dealer uh, back in Appleton, just answered an ad basically, and, and happened to hit it off with the guy who was a very small broker dealer situation. But I'd known the business, you know, because of that nine months, I learned a lot, but I learned what not to do. And then when I got to the broker deal, it was just a good fit. It was more of a salary position for me. And I just sort of figured out how to sell. And really selling is just providing people what they need. And we sort of formed this broker dealer was part of a insurance or a property and casualty insurance company, which was very unusual for the time. Um, and we it basically they were gonna shut it down. When I got there, they gave us a year. I was like 26, 27. They're like, hey, you got a year, either you guys make this work or not. I think we were doing a million dollars, gross concessions, losing money. Um, and we just, you know, I started calling other reps. We recruited heavily. And, you know, within a few years, we were at 40 million gross dealer, very profitable, had reps all over the country. And then what happened in, in the markets, all the way up through the 90s, stock market kept going up, going up. And by early 1998, the markets were thing. And all of a sudden, these bigger life insurance companies wanted to have the distribution of the broker-dealer. So we bid it out between Sun America and Jackson National, and we sold it. Now, that was another learning experience is that it was all great when we were in the process of selling, and we're all buddies. As soon as day one, as soon as we ended up selling to Jackson National, day one, it all changed. And it's it's a good it was a really good lesson for me now because I get called you know ten times a week by all these big investment firms. Hey, let's be partners. You'll be the operator. We'll give you all the money. But what I found out from that experience is that once you sign the contract and we got a nice check and we ended up getting a, a decent, pretty decent earnout, but it all changes. You're an employee, and you know you're going to do what they tell you to do, or you're, you're back out. in corporate. Back in corporate. You know, I just I was too young to know it. Um, and so it, so it happened that, you know, we ended up that way. And really where I ended up then was like, I'm miserable again. I, I'm, I'm listening to these guys where I don't think they know what they're talking about. I don't think the thing's going in the right direction. And what was crazy is I had a three-year contract where I could have sat there and did nothing and made, you know, at that time, probably $170,000, $180,000 a year, which was a fair amount of money and really done nothing. And we'd already gotten a check and we're going to get a couple more checks. So... I couldn't even do that because I'm like too impetuous and too, and I kept, you know, pushing these guys saying, we need to do this. We need to go this way. And finally I lasted six months, six months. It was just like, dude, we, it's a mutual parting of the ways, you know, they gave me a decent check and whatever. And they're like, Mike, it's, you know, you don't fit the corporate mold. And, and I'm like, I, I totally agree. And so what I did there is I went and bought a financial planning practice because I knew a lot of guys in the industry and knew how a proper one should be run. And I took this business uh, I think it was in early 99 that we bought that and really ramped it up. And we had, I don't know, probably 500 clients with doing a million dollars in gross dealer concession a year. It was a you know, pretty successful business, but it was a grind. 
And the grind is that in Wisconsin was primarily middle to upper middle class people coming out of paper mills and stuff like that with 401k rollovers. And, you know, you position position really, in my opinion, they did, they wanted to take way more risk because everyone was gung ho about the market then. And I'm like, you have 500,000 in your name. I mean, that could go away fairly quickly, but obviously 98 was a boom year in the market. 99 was a ridiculous year. And I remember in 99, we did really well with positioning with the asset allocation stuff. People were like up 30%, you know, 32% for the year. And they come in and yell at me because their friend was up 42 or 43%. I'm like, what? Yeah. I'm like, I, I don't get this. I don't understand that. And I, I couldn't relate to that more blue collar person as well as I wanted to. I tried to, but it just, again, that entrepreneurial streak was in me. And these were all, you know, more corporate, you know, middle of the road type people. Yeah. They'd been working for 40 years and Correct. saving, you know, thousand dollars, couple thousand dollars a year. And just, it, it added up and that's great, but it's just a different lifestyle. Different lifestyle. The, the attraction of the business was you could get some trails and some residual income. Um, but the negative of the business was a lot of hours and endless phone calls. They call you at, at home. You know, if the market went down for a couple months, it was like, you know, that, and it just became too big of a grind. And, uh, I think I did it for three years, maybe. And then what changed my life was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And mm, it's one know, of my favorites. Yeah. Robert Kiyosaki. And when I read that book, I'm like, oh, real estate with the, you know, he talked about two things, residual income, passive income, basically, and depreciation. And I didn't understand the depreciation side of it because I wasn't, I was a little in tune to taxes, but not as much as I am now. And that depreciation is a huge thing that we can talk about later, but the passive income is what I wanted. I wanted to be able to build up enough revenue where you could get time freedom. That's the whole point of switching out of the financial planning business. So I basically sold the financial planning business in um, early 2002 for you know, a couple hundred grand, probably worth more than that, but I was just done with it. You know, it really wasn't the money at that stage. And um, one of the young guys in my office who is uh, Chris Berry, who is my chief operations officer today, he was a young financial planner then and uh, we talked about real estate and he really liked the concept too. He wanted to be outside. He didn't want to be at the desk all the time. And so he said, hey, I'll run these properties if you put up the money and, and sort of manage them like that. And so we bought our first eight unit property in basically Appleton, Wisconsin uh, for 300,000. And we sort of, it was an apartment building and we just sort of figured it out and, and what happened, you know, how does it work and what are the tenants like? And we ended up, selling that, uh, that one thing, but a little over a year later for 305. So we were like happy about it. You know, we made five grand. Right. You, you made five grand to learn. I mean, that's what you learn. did. You were learning. That was really it. And we made a ton of mistakes. We bought a couple, four units, which we overpaid for. And really what we decided is once we got comfortable in a year, took a couple losses, but you know, we had enough cash set aside where I knew I wasn't going to take any income for a year but we really wanted to learn it. And what we learned is that nobody was moving to Wisconsin. So the apartment rents weren't really gonna go anywhere. Um, and, and again, the reason we got into apartments is because that's what Kiyosaki talked about. I, I didn't know what a mobile home park was then. No idea, never really seen one or gone through one. So we just went to the apartment side and then we decided, you know, where are people moving to is that, that was Florida. So we picked up our families and moved to Florida in late 2002 and started buying some apartment complexes. and. Um, we really liked the business. My dad was my only investor. He helped me out a little bit, but it was mostly my money. And Chris ran the apartments and 
We ended up with about 700 units there. A couple of them were Section 8 units, which is a whole long story about craziness and how that process doesn't work. But we you know, sort of figured that side of the business out and liked it. And we were going to stay in it forever. You know, and, and my, we liked Orlando. It was so much better than Wisconsin. ton of people moving there at the time. And then basically 07, 08 happened. In late 06, about mid 06, a bunch of people knocked on my door, very similar to today, and said, hey, we want to buy your apartment complex. And I was like, they're not for sale. I, I don't know what you're talking about. You're calling the wrong guy. I mean, they're like, no, no, we want to buy. What's your price? I'm like, what? What do you mean, what's my price? I don't, I don't know. Never thought about it. We were going to stay there forever. I had long-term financing on a lot of the stuff. And uh, we just sort of named a price. And they're like, okay, let's do it. And I'm like, what? I just, I was so surprised. You're like, man, I should have added another zero. I should have. I didn't know, you know. And we ended up getting rid of all of our stuff by the end of 2006 uh, at very high prices. Much more Great than Great timing. Before. Yep. Way more lucky than good. I did not see the, I knew things were going to fall off a little bit. Because when I distinctly remember in mid-06 at a golf tournament, we lived on a golf course there in Orlando, and it was like the neighborhood event or whatever, and everybody there was talking about how much equity they have in their house. And I'm like, oh my God, this doesn't seem like the top of the market, you know. And obviously, when a year later, all those people were underwater in their house. It happened so quickly in Orlando. Um, but we sold everything. But the negative was we couldn't reinvest in Florida. Because the prices were way too high, sort of like it is today. Um, and so one of my good brokers to this day, Enon Winkler, who you know, uh, with Other Street, he was from Greensboro originally. He was in the apartment side. I did a couple deals with him originally in the apartment side. He said, hey, if, if you're really thinking about moving, go to Raleigh or Charlotte. Those are going to be the next two hot spots." And how right he was back in yep. 2006. Took a while, obviously, to get there. Yep. But that's how we, we sort of transitioned. It went from the financial planning all the way to the real estate because of one book. And it goes back to that original story that I told you that I was willing to jump off that bridge. I was willing to take risks that I didn't even think I could do. And I got way more leverage than I probably should have been. And I got bailed out because of the high markets. And it got to be, and this is a crazy story about how bad the apartments got. We ended up buying a 100-unit property down in Fort Myers, super hot in 05, did it with very limited due diligence. And it turns out, you know, I should have done more due diligence. I was impetuous. The property went up, but we were really lucky to get out of it because it started to tail off and I didn't understand what the risks were and stuff like that. And, but what happened when I was trying to close that deal is that I was selling another one of my properties and I thought I had, you know, two months in between. Well, that first sale kept getting delayed. And it kept getting delayed. And all of a sudden it came down to the week of closing and I was 900 grand short. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I called my dad. He's like, dude, I, I don't have it. You know, I don't know what to tell you. And so I called my bank and who I'd done my deals with at the time. I said, I need 900 grand for two weeks. This is going to close. You know, it's going to happen. So they're like, hey, we're going to do what they call a Mike Conlon loan. We're going to trust you. There's no basis for this. But we trust you. We've done a bunch of deals. You've always, you know, done what you said you've done, whatever. So we're going to give you the 900 grand. So the first deal, two days before closing, fire in one of the units, smoke billing. I walk out of the, the office, smoke billowing out of one of the units. I'm like, oh my God, well, what are we going to do? I, 
And this is where you get into gray areas of business. And it's like, what do you do? A couple days from closing, you got a fire in the unit. We basically worked for almost 48 hours straight and cleaned that unit up as much as we could and didn't tell the new buyer because I needed that deal to go through. I, I, I was Yeah, you had 900 grand on the hook. Yeah. On the hook. Um, and we went through, he obviously found out about it and ended up cutting the check back for like 25, 30 grand, you know, to cover anything else. He was pissed about it, but it was all good in the end. But that's where I was like, oh, damn, I'm really taking a lot of risk here. And I don't really understand that risk because I was probably young enough and, you know, feel like you're invincible and stuff like that. But there yeah. was that streak in me that you have to. And I always tell people that becoming an entrepreneur and learning to take risk is an acquired skill. Very few people are born entrepreneurs and really get it. Mark Cuban, you know, a few guys that really selling stuff in college. I was not one of those people. I, you know, born in a very risk adverse household and basically told not to take risks and that here I am taking these risks. Um, luckily they paid off and it all worked out in the end. But I remember losing a couple nights of sleep. I'm like, damn, what am I doing here? You know, but yeah, I'm thinking back to that, like early part of your, cause I think that there's a lot of people that are, man, corporate or I'm coming, maybe they're coming out of college and they're like, gosh, just something like is in the back of their mind, like something it isn't yeah. fitting. Right. Yeah. But they had, they're probably surrounded by a lot of people that are like, no, go get the yeah. good grades, go go to the good college and go get a good job. Right. Yeah. And so they're, it's like these conflicting emotions. So if you're in those shoes, like what do you wish you would have done? Or like, what advice would you give to someone that's in that in spot? Shoes? I, it's really about courage. You know, you really got to dig deep and just say, I got to go for this. I, I, I don't know what it was in me, but I always had this thing like, A, I can do it. I'll figure it out no matter what. And that goes on to more in the career as, you know, as we do more things. But, you know, if, if you have that belief and you, you know, think about that whole apartment issue. We were there for almost 48 hours straight, cleaning it up, retiling, doing whatever we could to make sure that deal went through. Um, put the people up in a hotel for, you know, a week or two, whatever you have to do, especially when you're young in your career, you have to do manager quits, whatever. I was behind the desk. I mean, now Chris, my operations guy would say it was more of a mess behind the desk than anything else. <laughs> but I learned, you know, we had part, uh, you know, a few units and if he was at another one, I would go help out for the afternoon, you know, and that's where we learned the business. I learned who the people were. And, and really, it was affordable housing at that point in time on the apartment level. But then it's it's something inside of you where if you just can't take it, you got to do something else. Because what it, if you don't do that, and what I've seen time and time again with people, they stay in corporate America and it leads to bad marriage, drinking, reckless activity because there's something in them that needs to bust out. The problem yeah, they need an is, outlet of some kind. Absolutely. The problem is you live to your paycheck. And it's hard to, if you don't have enough money saved, you're taking a ginormous risk. And if you got kids, which I did at the time, it was even a bigger risk. But yeah, if you're making a hundred grand, 200 grand in corporate and you're like, wow, yeah. like, I, and, and your expenses are also 100 grand or 200 yeah. grand. And yeah. you're like, are you going to go jump off that bridge and yeah. go take the risk? Probably not because Probably not. you're like, well, what if this, what if that? And, and, uh, and like you said, Clay, you're surrounded by all the people that are telling you that's a stupid idea. And yep. it's, you know, they, they didn't read Kiyosaki. They were never, they weren't even interested in that. And, you know, I, you just sort of have blind faith back then that you just, you could do it. But it's, I always tell people you got to follow your heart. 
You know, if you know it inside that something's not right, you have to do something to change. Otherwise you're going to be miserable longer. Time. Yeah. And I mean, it's so obvious, but we have one life to live. So, yeah. and so for some people that corporate life is like, that's exactly what they want. And yeah. that's awesome. Like there's absolutely. Nothing, uh, I we, wish I could we, need, we need many people that are like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and, and it also, uh, I talked about it, uh, with Parker Klein, who was one of the guests on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he talked about regret minimization. And I think it's a Jeff Bezos thing. And it's yeah. looking at, if you have your situation, let's say you're in corporate America, or you, you have this itch to go into real estate or start your own business or whatever the itch is, it's what are you going to regret more? Yeah. Not pursuing it or staying in the job. And it's like, try to go through that, that framework of what am I going to regret more and like be really honest with yourself. Yeah. Because, which is hard to do in the moment, but um, that's an exercise I've seen be fruitful in the past. I think that's a great point too. And one of the things you'll realize that quickly as an entrepreneur is that you're alone on an Island for a long, you know, until you, when you're become more successful, everyone's like, Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, but when those first five, seven, eight years, whatever it is, it takes you to get somewhere. And you got a fire, fire extinguisher in your hand blowing. Oh my God, I mean, you know, you're supposedly an overnight success story 10 years later, you know, I mean, it's like, and the funny thing too is, you know, as I transitioned, which we'll talk about in a second in the mobile home parks, I, I didn't even tell my dad when we moved into mobile home parks because I was embarrassed. I thought it was trailer parks. He loved the apartment thing, the brick and mortar. He could tell his buddies about it. You know, we're doing this, we're doing that, whatever. You know, so it's just when you're so torn and you're, it, it takes a lot of courage to jump off the bridge sometimes and you it don't does. even know why, but you just got to do it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really good advice. And, uh, you've mentioned Chris's name multiple times yeah. and I think that's really important. I think people, you talked about going off on your own. But the thing was, was you weren't really on your own. That's correct. Right? You, you had someone that when the good things were happening, you had someone to celebrate with when the bad things were happening, you had someone to. Yeah jump off the bridge with yeah. you had, you had someone that was there with you to, to share that with. And I think that that not everyone needs that, but I, it's always a lot more fun. I grew up playing team sports. So I was like doing things as a team. And I think you had a similar mentality. Yeah. And that, that's a very good point. And let me just enhance that by saying, number one, if you're going to go into any type of deal and I made this mistake early on with the broker dealer and stuff like that is you have to own majority. 51% for sure. Don't even think about it. If you, if you trust yourself enough, 50-50 never works. It, one third, one third, one third doesn't work. Somebody's got to be on the hook for it. And if you believe in yourself, you can do that. And the greatest thing about Chris and I is we're really different personalities. I'm much more risk taker. I see the big picture. He's conservative and is a detail person. And that's why we work so well together. He handled a lot of the stuff. I kept when when stuff was really ugly in the nine hundred thousand. He didn't even know about it because I didn't want to get him freaked out about the whole thing because I know he he stressed out a lot more than I do, and it, it's to that point today even where we're saying, you know, should we sell the whole mobile home park portfolio? It's a big number right now. Um, maybe that goes away. Maybe it doesn't. You know, he's sort of saying yes. You know, and obviously we've sold some through the years, but you know, it just it's great to have somebody as your operations partner to do it. But if you're going to really be an entrepreneur and you're bleeding yourself, make sure you own 51%. All right. There you go. You heard it here first. Yeah, there you go. All right. So you, so you've talked about the journey so far. So then you're like at the apartment thing and then you're, you're getting into North Carolina and then. Okay. So we sold bars. everything in Florida. 
because you know I was so dumb at first that I told people no. They're giving me these big offers. I'm like, why would I sell that? You know, whatever. What am I going to do? You know, that was my biggest concern. Where am I going to go? And um, I knew that if we sold, the number was great. Where we had to move because I, I couldn't. We were always about managing locally first. We wanted our hands on everything. We've gotten much better since then, but we still like to have it, keep it geographically tight um, just because in case something happens, you get there quickly. So we said, okay, we sell everything in Florida. I can't reinvest. If I buy something in North Carolina, I'm probably gonna have to move. And that's what we ended up doing. So we went to, you went to Alabama, we went to Georgia, nothing really seemed great. And we went to Raleigh and Charlotte, loved both of them, ended up going to Raleigh because it was a little bit smaller. Um, and we had a bunch of 1031 money from the sale. And the last thing we bought in Florida was a mobile home park. I had gotten something from mobile home park university, stumbled across them somehow, got some manual from them. And really the point of the whole manual was mobile home parks are a lot easier to manage and they're more positive cash flow. Again, the reason I got into real estate was cash flow. The appreciation was always icing on the cake to me. I never really thought about it that much. Um, it was always about the cash flow and then to get the time freedom. And I said, well, if this business, you can get more cash flow and they're easier to manage, we can get more units. Let's try this. And so right away, we went out and looked for one and we bought one. We had no idea what we're doing. Didn't. So we buy this 80 space park in Lakeland. It was on probably four acres. I mean, these homes were so close together, it was ridiculous. You could stick your hand out the window and touch your neighbor's unit, it was so close. One of the units I remember would always, it only had 25 amps on it. So if the lady like turned on her TV and it had the hairdryer on, the thing would blow up. And you know, we turned that unit about every two weeks because people would be so pissed about the electric situation. But Chris really liked it and said, hey, we need to do this. This is a lot easier to manage. We don't need the maintenance guys. The hardest part about the apartment side is the maintenance guys. You turn them over constantly. I can't even imagine right now how difficult that is. They gotta be certified for AC and roofing and all the other stuff. So, you know, we that was the last thing and we only owned that park for 10 months and made like, you know, 100 grand down there or something. It was like a million five or something. And we're like, you know, maybe this is where we should go. So we decided we're gonna forget the apartment thing and jump in just based on that one park, even though it was a terrible park, we're gonna to go to the mobile home park thing. And so we 1031 the money up to here and we bought a park in Siler City in Sanford, um, both thinking, thinking both were sort of suburbs of Raleigh. Well, back in 2006, they weren't suburbs. Siler City still isn't. Sanford finally is after you know 15 years or whatever. Um, and we did it and we immediately, figured out that we overpaid for both of them because we didn't understand at that point in time, the business has changed, but at that point in time, none of the lenders counted any of the home income for any type of loan. So the home income, even though the seller was basing his price using the home income and we bought it based on that, when we tried to go and sell them because we realized we'd overpaid and we also realized Siler City was you know, basically a nothing town, was not gonna be anything for a long time. Um, we realized we you know, had made a mistake and we didn't really know that whole situation. And so we basically got a, out of both of those, made very little money in both of them, but we realized we learned the business again. You know, it's almost a year, we made some cash flow, made a million mistakes, and then figured out, oh my God, we, we need to get out of this. And what happened in Siler City is one of the chicken plants closed, there were two of them, one of them closed and I'm like, oh, 
unemployment, you know, employment's everything in, in, you know, multifamily or mobile home parks. And like, we got to get out of here. So we ended up selling it and made, you know, again, maybe paid 4 million for it, sold like four, one, just happy to get out of it. And I think the buyers basically when they went to refinance, got a value like two, seven on it. So you know, we're lucky to find, you know, sort of the greater fool theory, I guess it is um, lucky. Now those buyers still own it today, so they're doing fine with it, but it, it just, you know, again, it was a more impetuous, probably got us into more problems. We tried to research it as much as we can, but I think the opposite is paralysis by analysis, where you see it a lot too, especially in corporate America, you know, analyze, 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 and then nobody makes a decision. And I've always been like, hey, we, we got to act. You have to make a decision. If we're wrong, we'll do whatever we can to get out of it. But we're making our best decision. We think our downside's somewhat limited, um, and it proved to be somewhat limited. And you just got to go for it and you're going to learn and you're going to get better in what you do. And that's really been our philosophy the whole time. Yeah. And the theme, that's a theme certainly that you've had throughout this whole journey is just, you've started, you've gone after it and you've basically, you didn't realize it at the time, but you, but the first 12 to 18 months was all learning. You were maybe making a tiny profit, maybe, but you were, you were learning the whole time. So even if you made $0, you basically learned for free in that scenario which is then you can apply those learnings throughout the the rest of your yeah. journey, which is obviously, you know, turned into a great, you know, big, big portfolio in, in your, in your world. So I love that theme of just, you just got started, you figured it out and you, and you keep touching on confidence too, like that you had confidence in yourself that whatever happened, you would figure it out. Yeah. You had confidence that you're not going to fall completely flat on your face. Maybe you do for like an hour and then you hop, bring yourself back up and you go figure it out. Cause you have yeah. to like have to. apartment gets on fire. All right. I never anticipated going and spending 48 hours straight yeah. and cleaning a mess and you know, doing all that, but it's just what you had to do in the moment and you figured yeah, it out. Yeah. And you got to get in the business. You know, you can't really work on the business to later on. You really, you have to be in the business to learn it. And what I would always tell people, if they're going to make a job, jump into any type of business, if there's any way you can be an employee in that business for six to 12 months, you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache and probably a lot of money because you'll know exactly what the business is. Whereas if you're trying to buy something, you know, you guys have bought a bunch of, you know, properties as well. You don't really know what you're getting until you get in there. No, like with the real estate stuff I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing it for a decade now. If I had been a property manager for 12 months, just on the side, it would have given me so much more perspective so that when I was looking at a deal, looking at an opportunity, I could walk, when I walked through a house or I walked through a mobile home park, I could see the challenges or the opportunities that from that perspective, but because I didn't have it, it was just like, Oh yeah, numbers look all right. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And you're sort of taking a leap of faith to some extent. And there again, you guys are, you know, a lot like us too. You guys are willing to do whatever it takes to get it done. You know, and, and I think you guys have always had that sense of we will do whatever it takes. And you guys still have your corporate jobs, too. So you do have something to fall back on, you know, in case things didn't work out, which I think right. is a smart move. Again. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of folks that are doing that these days is as they yeah. if they're starting new businesses, if they're you know getting into real estate, whatever they're doing, whatever their side hustle is, whatever we term it these days. A lot of people are doing it on the side as yeah. well as whatever their other job is, if it's corporate America or not. And yeah, having a little bit of a safety net and, and I think remote work has helped a lot Correct. for a lot of people, yeah. you know, they don't have to show up into an office and, 
you know, even if they're only really working 20 hours a week, they got to sit there for 40 hours a week and show that they're there and do the whole brown nosing thing when it's like, Hey, I can work my, you know, for some people I can work my 20 hours and, and be just as efficient, earn my paycheck. And then I can apply those other 20 hours to whatever the other venture is, or some people just go and watch Netflix or whatever they want to (laughs) do. It depends. Yeah. What makes you happy, but you're absolutely right. That's, I never thought about that, but that remote working, which appears to be here to stay, especially on the tech side of things. Um, you know, I grew up in banking where I'd wear a suit and tie every day and you had to be there by quarter eight and you didn't leave till 530 after your manager left. And half the time you're screwing around, you know, you're just, you know, passing time. So stupid. Right. And yeah, think about all the time that you could apply to other things Yes. in your life yeah. or just, you know, I mean, heck, go exercise. You could go... Yeah. Uh, you spend an hour with your kid, go pick them up yes. from school, go, yeah. well, you know, play guitar, whatever you like doing. I mean, you could just do that and still be just as efficient in your job. It's just the stigma is still yeah. around yep. that there's not a lot of open conversation about that yet. Yeah. Yet. It's coming. But it, Younger Jay, yeah. You guys are all pushing it to make sure I know my kids who are in tech too. They're like, if they don't let me, you know, work from home, I'll go get another job somewhere else. I'm not going to put up with this. I'll yeah, go in I, and I want to go in. I may have told this story on another podcast, but I heard a, a about a guy who apparently is very good on the tech side. He's a, he's on the like architect side, um, so very bright, can code all that. Told the recruiter, "Hey, I'm only accepting a, a job that allows me, that I'm only going to work two days a week for eight hours each day. That's it. Wow. So if you know, and 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 at this salary, whatever it was, two hundred thousand yeah. dollars." It's like if they don't want to pay me that, that's fine. But like he just set the expectation that this is yeah. this is you're getting. I'm gonna yeah. do awesome work. I'm really yeah. good at what I do. But here's what I'm committing to, and I'm not gonna do an ounce over it. Good for him. And and so like the it's so interesting because like the leverage is changing on who who has the leverage, right? Yeah. It's now like the talent has a lot of leverage in corporate yeah. America. It's, Which is the way it should be. Really. Yeah. 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 So it, it's an interesting dynamic. Well, um, so what habit or belief? do you think has impacted you the most? The one thing that my parents did for me is when we were younger, my dad went, my mom and dad went to this, I guess a self-help, maybe Tony Robbins type of thing that was doing it back in the day. And it was all about positive affirmations. And when we were even young kids, we would have to say, instead of saying a prayer, you know, before going to bed, we had to do positive affirmations. I am a great person. Uh, I'm a great student. I'm a great basketball player, whatever it is. And it was closing your eyes and you had to say it 10 times. And they would even have them listen to the tapes at the time, you know, a little cassette player. And you plug it in. It was just all about positive affirmations. And as a kid, you don't get it. You know, you don't really understand, well, I don't know where this applies or whatever. But as you get older, you lean back on it. And really, it comes down to self-esteem and self-confidence. If you believe you can do it, you're going to get it done. You know, and as we as we talked about a number of times, you can do whatever it takes to get it done. But I was very fortunate that my parents were open to that. You know, th- you're talking back in the '70s that they were open to this, um, and really helped my dad in his career. And I just I didn't know any different. I just assumed that you always did that. And I I do that to this day. If you ever if you're ever having a period of time where hey, you know, I, I need to get back to that. I need to be those affirmations are important. Or you know, it's sort of like goal setting too. It's you know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And the expectations, the more you talk about them, the more you visualize them, I believe they come true. You know, and, and the one thing I tell people that I should have done when I was younger, but I just, I didn't know is I should have thought bigger. You know, that whole 
book about the power of thinking big is really true. The bigger you think when you're younger, you can do it. Um, but you just have to have the belief that you can do it and you're going to have multiple setbacks. I've had numerous failures, you know, in business where you just, you just don't cut it. You don't do it. And instead of quitting, you just got to retool and keep going. And that's the ones who quit are the ones who don't make it. But that personal belief or personal confidence for me is everything. I like that a lot. Well, to close out on the affordable housing, mobile home parks, affordable housing, I'm curious, I mean, you've been in this business now for over 15 years on the affordable yeah. housing front. What do you think it'll be like in a decade? You know, it's crazy. So, you know, we've gotten to the point now where we got like 43 parks, about 6,400 spaces. But the other thing that we did too is um, we've also sold 42 parks through the last 10 years, um, you know, generated, probably netted $50 million. And now we're at the perspective where I have guys, bigger hedge funds, private equity guys are throwing around 600, $700 million. It's a big number, you know, and it's like, what do we do? Where's the economy headed? Nobody knows. We all got into affordable housing because of the cash flow and it's supposedly, you know, recession resistant, which seemed that way it was for us in 08 to 2010. We'll all find out, I think, fairly quickly again. But that's sort of where, where we're at in the, from the transition. And all of a sudden, we, we got here, and it seems like it was overnight, but it was 10 years of basically we, we've bought 85 parks in the last 10 years almost, some couple before that, but mostly, and then sold 42 of them. So it's been a crazy run for 10 years, and that was the first, first time where we just sort of sit back and say, this is amazing, but now what do we do? You know, do yeah. we just sort of... Deals are much harder to find. You know, where are we going to go from here? The advantage I have is I've been around a long time, so I know the broker. So they'll call me if a deal happens because they know I can close. Um, but I'm sensing for the first time in how many years the prices are starting to come down a little bit. They're outrageous in my opinion right now. So it's really that where does affordable housing go from here? The demand's only going to get bigger in my opinion. After 08 to 012, there was probably 20, or say prior to 2010, there was 25% of the population that really was mobile home. They're never going to get out of mobile homes. That's where they're going to be. Now it's probably 45% because so many people got left behind. So the amount of people, it, we used to, if you think about this, we used to buy in markets and think, can we fill these homes? And now that seems ludicrous because we have waiting lists at every single park we have. As soon as you get a home on the ground, it's sold at five seconds. You know, the demand for affordable housing in the big metros is through the roof. I don't see that changing. What's going to change is interest rates. And you really think about it. We have a 30-year run here where, you know, globalization has brought a lot of deflationary pressures, which has made everything a lot cheaper and kept interest rates super low, which has kept asset prices very high. If that changes permanently, because globalization looks like it's over with China and Russia sort of splitting off and other countries, you know, are we going to have that higher inflation? I don't think it's going to be 1970s, you know, where it you know, goes to 14%, but we could have 3 to 5% inflation and be forced to keep rates higher, which means it's going to put a lid on asset prices. And that's really the big conundrum. A lot of people don't think it through as much as I do like that. But I sort of see it coming. I, I just, I, I, I really feel like the economy slowed significantly in the month of June. The Fed's going to raise another 125 bips over the next 60 days. 
Um, if they don't start easing or getting off the you know accelerator on the tightening by the end of the year, things are going to get ugly next year. And I think people are woefully unprepared for that. And that means unemployment, which seems like there's an unlimited number of openings right now, that could dry up real quickly. You know, now maybe not in tech per se, which I, you know, think is going to be, but in a lot of industries it could happen. So I'm just telling people be very cautious right now. Be selective in what you're doing. Um, things are going to change. I hope they go back to normal or, you know, interest rates. Again, we, we just did a refinance where we did 4.5% uh, for 10 years. Fannie Mae, interest only, ridiculous rate. But we're looking at like, damn, we were in the threes for the last two, three years. Four and a half is terrible. We look back and we're laughing historically. If when we got under six on a mobile home park or uh, primarily mobile home park, but even apartments, we were ecstatic. If you know, usually it was yeah, our perspectives have changed. We've been spoiled, <laughs> and that worries me because it's going to be a very rough adjustment if that goes back to the new normal. Um, and that means prices aren't going up. You know, you got to be more careful. It's we've all been very spoiled over the last, especially five years with asset prices. And you just don't know. Now, again, we all got into this business, affordable housing or mobile home parks because of the cash flow. And that will normally ride you through any bad periods of time. But, you know, you just got to be be cautious at this stage. That's where I'm saying with not only affordable housing, but anything else. Yeah. Well, that gets into the whole building wealth front. You mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is one of yep. my favorites. I mean, that, that changed my perspective big time. Um, I'd love to chat about depreciation because I think like if if you have a way to simplify that for someone who just, you know, has never dealt with it before, like if you can think back to simplify that, I think that would be interesting coming from you because I know you know a lot about the depreciation and how much of an impact that actually has. So how would you describe that to someone who doesn't really know this space? Yeah, so obviously you get into real estate primarily for passive income. You know, there's no such thing as being hands off anymore. You have to be actively involved. You have to have somebody like Chris that, you know, is reporting that you have to have good managers and stuff like that, as you guys know. But the depreciation side of it is really, it's basically taking a tax loss for an asset that's appreciating, which is crazy that we even have that in, in the uh, tax code. So even though your asset is depreciating, or excuse me, appreciating, it's going up in value, you're acting for tax purposes like it's going to zero. So for over a period of, now for apartments, it's usually 28 and a half years. Uh, mobile home parks, it can be as low as 15 years. And then you can get it even lower with what's called accelerated depreciation. Um, and in Trump's 2017-18 tax law, totally tailored to him and Jared Kushner, which tailored to us too, you can now take bonus depreciation. And most of the mobile home park stuff, you can, there's companies out there called cost segregators that will do the study for you. And you can actually take all, I would say, say 60% of the value of a park and depreciate it over say five to seven years. So you're taking all that and that, if you're full-time in real estate business, allows you to cover any gains. So you're always gonna have a loss. It's like if you have a million dollar asset, apartment or mobile home park or whatever, and it's it appreciates to one point one million, great, yep. you have an appreciating asset. But to your point, let's say it's a if it's a mobile home park that you can't appreciate land. So yeah, if the yeah. land's worth three hundred thousand, so that yeah. means that your your park's worth worth eight hundred thousand now, that you can depreciate that over a scheduled period. 
Correct. Um, and so even yeah. if you had a revenue of a hundred thousand dollars that year, yeah. Um, you're actually you and you you're going to be able to write that off of that hundred thousand dollars. Correct. And you look at you know they've they've published uh, Jared Gerald, uh, Jared Kushner's uh, tax returns for the last however many years. His dad's in the real estate business, always has been, and he hasn't paid any income in five six years. It's always had a loss, and people are like, "Oh my god, that's horrific." He's not you know paying, but he's just following the rules. The rules are you can depreciate this, and the, again, the Trump tax plan accelerated depreciation, so you could take it even quicker. And I know guys are way overpaying for assets just to get to depreciation. And that's wrong, in my opinion. That's a wrong, fundamentally wrong thing to do because, you know, you buy it for cash flow and the right reasons and, you know, hopefully future appreciation. But there's a lot of guys doing that in the last year or two, selling it as, hey, we're going to give you this write-off on your taxes because you're, you know, getting all this depreciation. Um, it's an amazing concept. The fact that it's available and there's... Uh, there's a guy that runs this company called The Related Group, one of the richest guys in the country, real estate developer. They figured over a period, I think it was like from 2020, seven years prior, he made you know well over a billion dollars and he paid no taxes um, because of the appreciation and all his buildings offset all of his, his income. And he didn't do anything wrong, got audited three, four times, you know, passed them all. It's just that depreciation is such a big part of why you get into real estate. And yeah. I tell and just so people understand, if, if you're not full-time in the real estate business, you can only deduct up to 25,000 losses. But that 25,000, if you're full-time working like you are, can can go off your ordinary income. So that saves you money right there in addition to whatever cash flow you get from the business. Uh, the yeah, so basically what you're saying is that if you have you know single family homes or whatever, whatever your real estate holdings are, the depreciation you have can only go really only go off of the income you make off of those properties. You're Correct. not going to, you know, take your W two from a hundred thousand dollars down to zero and no. pay zero taxes. But it can go down by twenty five thousand, which yep. is still a, be a benefit. And if you're full time in the business, you get unlimited deductions for depreciation, and that, you know, allows you, especially if you're taking any type of, you know, accelerated depreciation or now what they call bonus depreciation. You know, there were guys that, you know, basically you depreciate a $10 million property. And again, it's not all of it. You got the land portion of it and you got some of it that doesn't qualify. But say of that 10 million, you can, you know, depreciate 6 million over five years. Those are huge losses that can offset gains in the other part of your portfolio and allow you really not to pay taxes for a number of years. Legally. Yeah. And you, yeah. And you see all the up, you know, the upheaval of, you know, they've released Trump's tax yeah. records, you know, all, and it's, you're you're right. I mean, they, it's just going by the tax code and it's all based on real estate. And that's what Rich Dad, Poor Dad was about. It's Correct. go get passive income, which I love what you said, that it's really not that passive. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some days that it's passive, yeah. but other days it's not passive. <laughs> but go get that passive income and then have the, the power of depreciation the way that the tax laws are written. It can be a really powerful thing. And I just, and so I'm glad that you went through the process of trying to kind of dumb it down for everyone because it's, it's a really powerful thing that yeah, I don't really think that people and not understand. not often discussed and often overlooked because if you're not in the business and really doing it on a bigger scale, it doesn't impact you as much. But once you get into it on in a bigger scale, you're like, you know, this shouldn't even be allowed realistically to this level. The bonus depreciation goes away in a couple of years. It goes down significantly after this year and it needs to because it's 
damaging for the industry because people are overpaying for properties and they will end up in trouble if they don't cash flow properly, you know? Right. Right. So what's the best way to get on the right path to wealth building from your perspective? I, I still think real estate is probably the number one thing, but I also always go back to people and say the number one rule is you have to own something. You got to own a business. You got to own real estate, you know, maybe your financial assets, 401k stocks and bonds. You have to be in control of an asset, especially in the way the tax laws are uh, in order to really get ahead. And I, I, I give people a lot of credit, like obviously corporate America, the CEOs and everything are making a boatload of money, but they're paying a huge price where you're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, you know, flying all over the world. You have no life. You sacrifice a lot versus building a business where you can buy it, sell it, whatever. You know, corporate America, I just don't think you're going to get the time freedom that you want over any period of time, unless you accumulate enough wealth or you're a big enough saver that you can do that. I, you have to own an asset in order to get ahead in America. And it's, it's tough to do because you're not taught about it in schools. Nobody knows entrepreneurship. Nobody really gets it. Nobody understands the ups, the downs, the risks and everything else like that. You really have to have some type of internal driver, be lucky enough to stumble into it uh, to get it done. And I just think that's not going to change in America. You, you have to own things in order to get ahead. Well, how do you go about staying on that path? It's one thing to go get on the path and that's a big leap. Go jump off that bridge. Like we've talked about, but then how do you keep staying on that path? Cause you got all these failures, you got all these ups and downs, especially at the beginning. Yeah. I think obviously number one, you got to have confidence in yourself. And like we talked about, you can do whatever it takes. But I think the other big thing to staying on the right path is you got to be a lifelong learner. You always got to ask. I still read a ton of articles. I'm always asking. I'm always interested to talk to other people in the business. What are you seeing? What are you looking at? What are, you know, what are the deals that are happening? What's not working for you? You know, what is working for you? And uh, there's guys in the business, especially some of the younger guys that have come in and are doing like crazy stuff, in my opinion. They're all over the country and buying stuff in Phoenix and Maine and whatever. I'm like, how are you even managing that, you know, 50 Space Park? I, you know, I don't understand some of those things. And so you either reaffirm what you're doing or it makes you think. But if you're a constant lifelong learner, you're always going to try to stay ahead of the game. And really, from an entrepreneur, you hate to say this, but you always got to be looking around the corners to see what's next. And it, there's always something that's going to happen that you're not expecting. It's going to come out of the blue that, you know, can upset your business. And you hope an affordable housing doesn't happen, but it could be national rent control. It could be, you know, high interest rates, um, you know, whatever it may be. There'd be a million things that can happen. Now you can't obsess about them, but you just got to be aware of them. And you do that by staying ahead of the curve and, you know, learning as much as possible and trying to make the best decision you can. Yeah, it's good advice, Mike. Well, what have we missed? <laughs> Not a lot. We talked about a lot of stuff, obviously, and I appreciate the questions because I think they've been in depth with people. And I, I would just tell people, is especially the younger you are, the easier it is to get started. Don't be afraid. You know, take that leap, jump off that bridge if you have to, but know what your downside is. You know, make a calculated risk. And there's know so how deep the water more. is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great idea. But there's so much more information available now. You know, when I was, we had to go to the bookstore and buy Kiyosaki. Now you can get online, you get a million different podcasts and everything else. So the information is amazing. Now the prices have gotten high with everything. It's, I think it's a much more difficult time to get into real estate or any other business. Things are cyclical. 
we're due for a correction. A correction's a good thing. This one may be more significant than people are saying. Um, so be prepared, have a lot of cash in case it does turn out you know, to be uglier than you think. And then just be, just be ready because the best thing that could happen to someone like you or I is that there was a significant correction in the real estate business or whatever. And if you have a lot of cash and you can buy some assets at a reasonable price again, that's a fantastic opportunity. Just like it was after yeah. you know, 2008 to 2012. Yeah, it's no different in the stock market or any other asset class that you're into. Like, buy when people say don't buy. Yeah, that and that, that takes when, a when lot. When people of are scared, yeah. that's when you yeah. buy. Yeah, that's, you know, Buffett's always done that. That's always what he says. You know, and uh, when people are running scared, is the time to buy. But it takes a lot of courage to do that. So. It's a lot of courage, yeah, because you got a lot. Everyone around you saying don't do anything, hold everything yeah. tight. It's going to get worse. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage. Well, Mike, my uh, my vision for you is that you're going to sell your mobile home park portfolio. Chris is going to convince you that you guys are going to sell. That means you're going to have a down payment for the Milwaukee Bucks. You're going to be able to buy the Milwaukee Bucks. I like that. And you're going to be able to ride it into the sunset with Giannis carrying you to multiple NBA championships. I love it. I love it. I hope that comes true. That'd be awesome. (laughs) That would be really cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much for the time, man. It was really cool for you to share your story, your journey failures, successes, and uh, I appreciate the mentorship to date. And um, thanks again for being on, for taking the time and for, and for providing your insight, man. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.